With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Southern Gothic is a podcast that explores the history behind some of the American South's darkest days, greatest mysteries, and most chilling ghost stories. In June of 1972, wreckers began dismantling an old dilapidated two-story mansion at 683 South 5th Street in Memphis, Tennessee. The monumental classical revival structure was built by Winston J. Davey on about six acres of land sometime between 1856 and 1859. But by the time the wreckers arrived, the old building had been left in disrepair for so long that the commercial appeal reported in 1939, over three decades prior, that, quote, nothing remains today except the dingy and dilapidated old mansion with tall columns and big windows. The gray of its framed walls is so drab and blotched that even the remaining chips of paint are practically drained of color. Dulled to a lifeless gray are the majestic old columns fronting the wide veranda that knew the rustle of hoop skirts and the faint perfume of lavender and old lace in a bygone day. Of course, the mansion wasn't always this way. As reported, the building was once a grand estate sitting atop a small hill surrounded by trees. It featured a stately portico with six tall ionic columns across the front, a brick foundation and a painted wood exterior. The inside boasted a central hall, which was flanked by two rooms, including a double parlor and a staircase that, along with many other interior features, was adorned with beautiful hand-carved woodwork. Davy, who was the president of the Southern Bank of Tennessee, only lived here for a few years though, as in 1860, he used the property as collateral for a loan to purchase 1,200 shares of stock in the Memphis and Charleston Railroad Company, a gamble that did not pay off. During the Civil War, the military took over the railroad, rendering his stock investment absolutely worthless. The mortgage on the house wasn't foreclosed on, but in 1866, he sold it to his debtor, Colonel Robert C. Brinkley. Brinkley was an instrumental figure in the early development of rail lines across the South. And following the war, he became president of the Little Rock and Memphis Railroad Company. However, most folks in Memphis might know him because 
he built the original Peabody Hotel. Well, as for the wooden mansion he acquired from Davy, in 1869, the railroad baron decided to establish the Brinkley Female College, quote, under the supervision of the Reverend J.D. Meredith. Unlike most of the institutions for higher learning that were aimed at women during this time, the Brinkley Female College offered instruction in more than just domesticity, with a variety of courses on reading, arithmetic, philosophy, foreign languages, and music. As a result, within two years of its inception, 50 students were enrolled there, making it the largest in the state at the time. Unfortunately, this early success did not last for long. In 1872, the doors to the Brinkley Female College were shut for good, but the reason had nothing to do with academics or the like. Rather, the institution fell victim to superstitions surrounding a series of events that took place there in 1871. A supernatural tale that's widely considered the most sensational ghost story in Memphis history. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Clara Robertson was only about 12 or 13 years old on Tuesday, February 21, 1871, when she first encountered the ghost that would change her life. 
the blonde-haired, blue-eyed student at the Brinkley Female College, was diligently practicing piano upstairs when her attention was drawn away from the piano keys by a harrowing and inexplicable vision. Standing before her was a horrifically emaciated young girl, perhaps no older than eight. The girl's face was gaunt and her eyes were deeply sunk in, giving them a disturbing mad appearance. Her withered body was clothed in a filthy and tattered pink dress that appeared to be coated in some type of strange, mold-like slime. So you can imagine, this was a chilling sight. But what made it even more shocking was that this girl was transparent. Upon this realization, Clara screamed and leaped from the piano bench to seek refuge in a nearby dorm room, where she jumped into bed and did exactly what you'd expect just about any girl her age to do. She hid under the blankets. Now, obviously this didn't really do anything at all, as when Clara peeked out from the sheets, she saw the spirit drift across the room toward her, eventually placing an ethereal hand on the pillow next to her head. Absolutely terrified, the girl once again pulled the sheets over her head in an attempt to dispel the apparition, and she sat there terrified for what probably felt like an eternity, but was likely just a few minutes. This time, when she dared lower the blanket, the horrifying sight was gone. So as fast as she could, Clara got out of the room and ran down the hall to tell her classmates what she had just encountered. But the poor girl was met with disbelief and ridicule. In fact, later that night, she returned home to her parents in tears quite likely just as much the result of this merciless teasing as fear. Well, then the following day when Clara returned to school and nothing out of the ordinary took place, she started to think that maybe those strange events she experienced the day before might not have been anything supernatural at all, but rather just a mean-spirited prank by some of her classmates. After all, they were far too eager to tease her. Unfortunately, the return to normalcy was short-lived. Author Laura Cunningham described the events that took place next in her book, Haunted Memphis. On Thursday, Clara was with two other students in the music room when she heard the sound of water splashing to the floor. The girls turned to see the skeletal little girl standing in the middle of the room the girls fled from the room and were once again met with ridicule from the other students. According to the daily newspaper, the Memphis Appeal, when the ghost appeared again, Clara and the other girls ran screaming down the stairs to one of their teachers, Miss Jackie Boone. The girls brought Miss Boone back to the room where they had seen a transparent little girl. When they opened the door to the music room, the ghost pointed a skeletal finger in a southward direction and began to speak. Ominously, the specter pointed toward the window and told Clara that there were valuables buried beneath a stump about 50 yards away from the house and that she must go and find them. But then, as quickly as the spirit appeared, she vanished in thin air. 
Well, it's at this point that Clara's schoolmates no longer dared ridicule her for the ghostly sightings. Now, they were all too scared as well. But it's also at this point that Clara's father, J.C. Robertson, a prominent Memphis attorney, decided to get involved. After all, his beautiful, intelligent little girl had come home not once, but twice in a state of panic and fear. So the following morning, he went down to the school and met with the principal, Reverend Meredith. Robertson was no doubt incredibly concerned about his daughter, and Meredith was strongly motivated by a desire to keep the school's reputation safe. So the pair came to an agreement that an investigation should take place. But the following week, when Clara was sent out to the schoolyard so that her fellow students could be questioned about these recent events, the situation only escalated. This time, the apparition not only appeared to Clara, but also introduced herself and reassured her that she meant absolutely no harm to the girl. Don't be alarmed, Clara. My name is Lizzie. I will not hurt you. She told Clara that the property the school was on actually belonged to her family and that the owners of the school had obtained it illegally. But the ghost named Lizzie claimed that everyone in her family was now dead and she needed someone to help her to undo the wrong that was committed against them. Why Clara was chosen for this task is unknown, but the spirit implored her to find the papers and valuable items buried in the yard and then use them to reclaim the property and get justice for her family, which was a pretty big ask for such a young girl. Now, as you can imagine, Clara was pretty traumatized by these encounters and as a result, adamantly refused to return to school the next day, declaring she'd rather die than have another encounter with Lizzie. And so her father, desperate to help his little girl and absolutely perplexed by the events, reached out to one of his clients for assistance, a reported spiritual medium named Mrs. Norse. Author Susan Sawyer recounted the unique events that followed in her book, Myths and Mysteries of Tennessee. Later that evening at the Robertson's home, several neighbors gather round a table with Clara and her father as Mrs. Norse prepared to conduct a seance. Though Mr. Robertson and most of his neighbors had never believed in ghosts or spirits, they were astonished by the events that unfolded before them. Clara swooned and fell back into her chair. Her eyes remained open in a vacant stare as she hurled her hands back and forth in a violent manner. Mr. Robertson grasped his daughter's hands so she would not harm herself, and Clara became much calmer. Mrs. Norse then gave the girl a pencil and paper, and Clara began silently but feverishly writing. Her initial scribblings were illegible, but soon it became clearer. She detailed the events of the past week and wrote down the name Lizzie Davidson, which she then corrected to Lizzie Davy. Folks around the table then began pressing her with questions, to which Clara, who was seemingly in a trance, wrote down responses that they believed were coming from Lizzie herself. It was then that they learned more about the hidden valuables, which they were told were buried beneath the tree stump 
where Lizzie had appeared to Clara only days before in the schoolyard. These treasures reportedly included gold jewelry, a diamond necklace, a substantial sum of coins, and most importantly, the property's title papers. Well, y'all, after hearing this, how could anyone not be intrigued by the mystery, no matter how skeptical they might have been in the supernatural? So, several of the men went down to the school to see Reverend Meredith. And since by this point, the story had already been unleashed into the public by all too eager newspapers, greatly affecting folks' perception of the school and scaring the living daylights out of the students, Meredith absolutely consented to the excavation hoping to put an end to the entire affair. Unfortunately, this probably made it worse, as the March 6, 1871 edition of the Memphis Public Ledger very skeptically reported the scene that ensued when those men began digging. Over 500 persons visited the hole yesterday, and over 500,000 questions were asked, all about the ghost and the treasure. Captain Kidd's treasure never so excited a people. By the time they were done, the men had dug a hole about five feet deep and five foot wide. Yet they found nothing more than some chunks of brick and the like. Not even a hint of what they had hoped for. Well, the spirit was not pleased by this. Lizzie soon appeared to Clara and demanded to know why she wasn't out there searching for the valuables herself. So, Mr. Robertson took his daughter out to the schoolyard, where she attempted to communicate with Lizzie, who then appeared only to her. She insisted that only Clara herself could find the jar in the ground and should thus be the sole digger. But when Clara got to the excavation site, she fainted. Upon her revival, though, Clara said she saw the jar of valuables but it was now clear to J.R. Robertson that his daughter could not physically do what was being asked of her. So he brought Mrs. Norse back for another seance, hoping to communicate with Lizzie himself. He told her that Clara couldn't do as she wished and asked if he could dig in her place. Lizzie agreed, but she stipulated that the jar, once found, must not be opened for 60 days. After that, it took Robertson less than an hour to find and retrieve the mysterious item that had been at the center of this entire ordeal. A large, moldy glass jar, roughly 12 inches tall and 10 inches wide. And inside was nothing more than a large envelope. Then, keeping his word, Robertson left the jar sealed, took it home, and hid it in a safe place. But, of course, when word of this got out, madness ensued. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw 
A though she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she or she, call the police or call the police like <laughs> she should have. Exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Only several weeks had passed between the time Clara Robertson first claimed to have encountered the spirit of a malnourished little girl named Lizzie and her father's discovery of the jar that she claimed the ghost had directed her to find. In that time, local papers had a field day with the story and the frenzy that ensued grew so large that Mr. Robertson decided to send his daughter away for the 60 days that everyone waited for the jar to be opened. But while Robertson may have worried about Clara during this time, he also decided to use the public's fever for answers to his advantage, and he made plans to make the eventual opening a ticketed event at the Greenlaw Opera House, charging admission and splitting the proceeds between his daughter and an orphanage. Although, Bishop Charles Todd Quintard, who oversaw the church home, was pretty quick to separate himself and he made everyone aware that he had no intention of accepting money associated with a ghost. Either way, the folks in Memphis wouldn't let the story go. And as they impatiently waited to see the contents of the jar, speculation began running rampant. Susan Sawyer documented some of the theories and hypotheses that folks were talking about. During the two-month waiting period, older residents of the city also had the chance to recall the family named Davy, who lived in the mansion that eventually became known as Brinkley Female College. Colonel Davy had built the mansion as a residence for his family in 1855. One of the daughters, Lizzie, died at home in 1860. Remembered as a beautiful child with long, dark hair and dark eyes, Lizzie was described as an intelligent, sweet girl 
who passed away around the age of seven or eight. The older citizens of Memphis also recalled one unusual fact about the child's funeral. Instead of being buried in a traditional white shroud, Lizzie had been buried in a pink dress with white trim and pink slippers. Moreover, a scandalous lawsuit of the land on which the mansion had been built occurred about the same time. As these facts came to the surface, the quote, firestorm of speculation about the Brinkley ghost climbed to new heights and folks began referring to the now infamous spirit as Pink Lizzie. Unfortunately for all the spectacle surrounding the mysterious jar that Pink Lizzie had claimed would give her family justice, the event that Robertson had planned to make its contents public failed to take place. One evening, while he was entertaining visitors at his home, Robertson heard a noise outside and went to investigate. After disappearing for a bit too long, his guests started to get suspicious and went looking for him. But when they found the attorney, he was lying unconscious on the ground and bleeding from the head. He eventually reported that four men had attacked him at gunpoint that night and demanded to know the location of the jar. Well, fearing for his life, he led them to the shed or the stable he had out back where the jar had been hanging from a rope. So, after that night, the jar that Clara had been so desperate to find for the spirit of Lizzie was never seen again. To some, this was one final mysterious event that proved the true value and nature of the object. But to others, it seemed as if this was just a convenient way to escape the inevitable discovery that the entire chain of events had all been one big hoax. Either way, the Brinkley Female College did not survive much longer. After all, what good, God-fearing family would want to send their daughter to live and learn at a place that was as notoriously haunted as the old Davy house? And even after the college closed, Colonel Brinkley found it difficult to find a tenant to take its place, forcing him to eventually just go ahead and let a family live there rent-free in exchange for merely maintaining the property. Unfortunately, this arrangement only lasted two years because Brinkley found out that they were holding seances there and evicted them immediately. Eventually, the house was divided into apartments, but this too didn't last for long and the old notorious home was left to rot until the 1970s when a paper manufacturing company purchased the property to expand its nearby facility. They sold the house itself to a local businessman who planned to take it apart and reconstruct it on land he owned outside of Jonesboro, Arkansas. But while this house might no longer be there, it certainly hasn't stopped folks from speculating about what really happened there to create such a frenzy back in 1871. While the local paper called the Memphis Avalanche made an awful big commotion about the events, covering it all in great detail, for the most part, the local press at the time widely touted it as a hoax. Initially, newspapers like the Public Ledger 
said it was nothing more than the imagination of a schoolgirl. Some peculiar mental condition of the young lady caused by a high state of nervous excitement. But eventually, suspicion landed on Clara's father, as it seemed the Memphis attorney might be using these unusual circumstances as a spectacle for financial gain. A suggestion that was certainly supported not only by the grand event he was planning, but also knowledge that he was going to publish a pamphlet to sell that included the full accounting of the Brinkley College ghost. The Memphis Daily Appeal called his intentions out in their March 25, 1871 edition, claiming he was awful determined to keep the story going. Alas, poor ghost. Robertson is determined that neither the public nor the poor ghost shall have rest about the jar. Read this from him. During the exhibition, Miss Clara, assisted by Mrs. Norse and others, will give a seance on the stage for the purpose of testing her wonderful powers of clairvoyant. On the other hand, it seemed that many who doubted the authenticity of the story might have actually done so due to their own prejudices, believing that all the attention just reflected poorly on the city of Memphis and its people. To see men with sense digging up old stumps with the expectation of finding a hidden treasure is a spectacle as pitiable as it is ludicrous. Brinkley College has been broken up by one of the most transparent, weakest, and baldest humbugs that ever disgraces any community. Now y'all, as usual, I of course ain't gonna tell you what to believe here, but there's one thing that folks have been pointing to to support Clara's claim as legitimate from the very start. You see, when Clara initially came forward and claimed that the girl was Lizzie Davy and began discussing the way that the ownership of the house had changed, people who knew the Davy family came forward and verified that the information Clara gave is accurate. We discussed this earlier, but what we didn't mention was that Lizzie Davy died in the home in 1861, and some people said that they remembered the little girl was buried in a pink dress with strawberry stains and pink slippers because they were her favorites. Of course, there really isn't any way to verify this information, much less what part of the story took place when. I mean, maybe Clara was given that information by her father, who had insider knowledge. But as Laura Cunningham writes, quote, What makes Clara Robertson's story so fascinating is the notion that if Clara's story was not true, Miss Robertson played the most successful practical joke in Memphis history. As for what happened to Clara, much of that remains a mystery as well. Years later, one of her classmates claimed that the whole event surrounding the ghostly sighting had changed the girl, and afterwards she drifted away from her friends. Then, over a half century later in 1939, the story was rekindled when an account was in a series of newspaper articles for Halloween. Afterwards, the paper was said to have received responses from several people who knew and remembered both Clara and those fateful days back in 1871. One of them, a woman, 
said that as an adult, Clara began to actively practice spiritualism in her home, while another woman wrote that Clara became the second wife of a spiritualist, and that his first wife's ghost, quote, would return at night and kick her out of bed. Yet another, who claimed to be a, quote, reliable source, said that in 1876, when Clara was 18, she married a wealthy 72-year-old widower, and the pair went on to have several children before Clara eventually died of tuberculosis. Unfortunately, the mystery as to what actually happened to Clara is as unsolvable as the legitimacy of the ghost of Pink Lizzie. Today, a warehouse sits on the former site of the Brinkley Female College. And while some folks claim that contractors working there have had paranormal experiences at night, none have had near the impact of the ghost of Lizzie Davy, the purported spirit at the center of the most infamous haunting in Memphis history. My name is Brandon Schecksneider and you were listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independent podcast produced by Southern Gothic Media. This week's episode was written by Brandon and Brianne Schecksneider. And if you enjoyed the show, please consider becoming a supporter of Southern Gothic over on Patreon. There, you'll receive access to both ad-free episodes and bonus content like picture archives, videos, and more. The link is in the show notes. And as always, y'all, thanks for listening. Lucky Little Shacks. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.